Chris Snow, loving and devoted husband, father, brother, uncle, and friend, died on September 30th, 2023. He was 42 years old. Chris was born on August 11th, 1981, in Boston, Massachusetts, the firstborn child of Linda and Robert Snow. As a child, Chris was so smiley and talkative that his mother nicknamed him Motormouth and Guy Smiley. At a young age, Chris's passion for the things he loved and his innate curiosity and intelligence were unmatched. He showed a keen interest in and talent for the written word, and he deeply loved sports. His father, a literacy teacher, shared those passions and stopped at nothing to encourage his son's pursuits. At 14 years old, Chris started writing stories for a small local newspaper and was thrilled to collect his first paycheck, an unmarked envelope of cash left each week in his family's mailbox. It was not until years later that Bob revealed he was the source of those paydays. When Chris was in high school, Bob talked Boston University into giving his son a press pass before he could drive a car. After high school, Chris attended Syracuse University and was an integral part of the Daily Orange student newspaper during his four years there. He spent his summers off from Syracuse working in the sports departments at the Boston Globe and the Los Angeles Times. And shortly after graduating, he was named the Minnesota Wild beat writer for the Minneapolis Star Tribune. The following summer, a young sports reporter from a small town in South Dakota found herself interning in the sports department at the Los Angeles Times, where the editor told her that the summer before, their intern, a young man named Chris Snow, had left the paper early for his dream job covering hockey. One year later, that same young woman sat in the office of the Boston Globe sports editor interviewing for another summer job. The editor explained that the paper had recently hired some young reporters, one being Chris Snow. This guy, she thought, is everywhere I go. Little did she know. That summer, Chris was a 23-year-old phenom back in his hometown covering the Boston Red Sox for the Globe, and Kelsey was there as a 21-year-old intern. The two met shortly after Kelsey arrived, and as they sat across from each other at a crowded pub in Alston, Massachusetts, it took Kelsey about 10 minutes to fall in love with Chris's magnetic smile and the way his blue eyes sparkled when he threw his head back and laughed. They shared a taxi ride home with friends that night, and when their knees touched in the back seat, Kelsey knew she was a goner. The two fell quickly in love and have stayed there for 18 years. In 2006, the Minnesota Wild offered Chris a job to be their director of hockey operations. It was an opportunity most reporters only dream about, working for a team instead of writing about one. And after much contemplation, Chris left journalism behind for a chance to work in the sport he loved most. That summer, Chris and Kelsey got engaged, and she joined him in Minnesota. For five years, the couple stayed in St. Paul, where they were married, while Chris worked for the Wild and Kelsey covered the Minnesota Twins for the St. Paul Pioneer Press. In the summer of 2011, the Calgary Flames made Chris their director of video and statistical analysis, and the couple moved to Alberta with their five-week-old son, Cohen. Over the next 12 years, Calgary and Canada became home for the snows. They welcomed their daughter, Willa, in 2014, and their family felt complete. Then, in June 2019, Chris was diagnosed with ALS and given 6 to 12 months to live, less than a year after his father had died of the same disease. While most ALS is sporadic, 10 to 15% is genetic, and that genetic ALS is the kind that had killed Chris's father, two uncles, and a cousin. But Chris's story would be different. Unlike his family members, Chris had the chance to join a promising clinical trial, and one month after diagnosis, he started receiving a medication that changed the trajectory of his life. 
it gave his family four years together instead of one. When Chris was diagnosed, he asked the doctor, what should I do next? The doctor told him, do what brings you joy. And that is exactly what Chris did. He coached Cohen and Willa in hockey and baseball. He took his family on adventures, both epic and simple. At his family's beloved Merry Meeting Lake, he jumped off the dock and swam with his kids and drove the boat and soaked in every New Hampshire sunset. He went for bike rides and played catch and mowed the lawn. He reveled in the ordinary and rested in the comfort of knowing that his bucket list contained one thing, spending every moment he could with the people he loved. The Snows chose to live out their life with ALS, the pain and the joy, the heartbreak and the laughter, in the public eye so people could see the devastation of a disease that many look away from, raising awareness and more than $575,000 for ALS research. ALS took away Chris's use of his hands and his arms and stripped him of his brilliant smile. He lost his booming laugh and his ability to speak, eat, and drink. But he never complained. He never faded away. He never hid. He worked full-time until his death as an integral part of the Calgary Flames front office, and he shared his story and his vulnerability with the world, inspiring legions with his example of how to live while you are dying. Chris was never afraid to suffer. He was never afraid to die. He was only afraid of leaving Kelsey, Cohen, and Willa. He only ever worried about them. And so he wove for them a strong web of beautiful people who loved him and in his absence will love his family. Chris's courage, his determination to see the beauty in life, and his unwavering optimism were beacons to everyone when all hope seemed lost. Those who love him walk forward now with his light guiding the way. Hey everyone, it's Kelsey, and this is Sorry I'm Sad, a podcast about grief, loss, and the importance of hope. So I'm here. It is Thursday, December 14th, and tomorrow is my 16th wedding anniversary. And Chris has been gone for almost 12 weeks. A friend told me the other day that I don't owe anybody my grief. And she's right. I know that I do not owe anybody my grief. I have never owed anybody my grief. But I have also felt like this life is mine for a reason. And if I have any set of skills, aside from loving my people, it's probably words. And a couple weeks ago, I was in a sporting goods store, and I had just been in the car before that, talking to Chris and thinking about what to do with this story and when to start telling it again. And I was looking at hockey stuff for my son, and a woman came up to me and she said, I'm sorry if this is strange, but are you Kelsey Snow? And I said, yeah, I am. And she said that she had listened to my podcast and she had read my blog and she had followed our family story and she was so sorry. 
And then she said something that I've heard a few times, but in that moment felt just extra prescient because I had just been thinking about this and talking about it to Chris. And she said, I hope that you keep doing your podcast because the things you talk about make a difference to so many people. And I thanked her. And then we went on our way. And I've been thinking so much about that lately, about what I owe people, what I want to give people, how much to let people in right now. And I think that the thing is, I I know that I never owed anybody my grief and that that's not even the right word because I've never felt like sharing my sadness and the hard parts of my life and our life. I never felt like that cost me anything. If anything, I felt like putting all of this out into the world only made me feel less alone. I've said that so many times and I'll say it again because it's true. And so you know, here I am three months after losing Chris and you're listening to this on my 16th wedding anniversary and my first one as a widow. And I don't know how how much I have to say right now. And I don't know how much I can say without crying. And, and though this is about real emotions and this is about sharing those hard parts of our lives, it's probably not ideal to be sobbing through most of a podcast into your car speakers or your AirPods as you <laughs> walk the dog in the morning. But I wanted to come back and, and I felt like today was a day to come back. I promised Chris that I would tell our story and our story is not over. And there's so much left to say and there's so much left to talk about. So Three months ago, two days before Willa turned nine, and four days before I turned 40, Chris took a nap, and he didn't wake up. And the ins and outs of that day, I definitely can't talk about in a coherent way. But we did not think that Chris was close to dying. Quite the opposite. Chris hadn't been in the hospital for more than six months after his trip to the ICU a year ago, we felt like we had so many more tools in our toolbox and that we were managing so well the things that had put him in the hospital before. And in my mind, I foresaw only good things for us. Yeah, there were absolutely challenges and the challenges were not small. Chris's hands and arms were not good. You know, I've heard it from a number of his friends since he passed that, you know, they thought they could tell he was getting sicker or, or what have you, because he texted so much less often. And it's not because he was sick. It's because he was trying to adapt and he was in the process of learning new ways to communicate with via text and things like that. Be- because his hands, his left hand, which had been, you know, his only hand for the last four years, it was pretty much gone. So we were learning new ways for him to communicate, but we were learning them. And you know, we really felt nothing but hopeful in the weeks before he died. You know, we had just hired a caregiver. She was incredible. She was making him feel so hopeful. She was just finishing up her schooling to be an occupational therapist and the number of tools and resources and technologies that she had already introduced to make Chris's life easier were 
just huge. It is hard to be excited about something or to feel hopeful about something when you have ALS. And Kate had made Chris feel like that every single day. And by extension, she made all of us feel like that. Since Chris left the ICU, I had been incredibly burnt out. Um, I was his hands, his arms, his interpreter. I was his everything. And that is not easy. And while we would like to say that that sacrifice is something that we'd all do happily for the person we love, doing that happily is not possible because it is so very hard. And if you've ever been a caregiver, you understand what I'm saying. Um, Not only was I caring for Chris in a very 24-7 way, I was also pretty much a single mom in the day-to-day raising and caring for our children. And so Kate starting on September 1st this fall was an absolute godsend for everybody. I distinctly remember one day coming home and I don't know what I had been doing, something like having lunch with a friend and and going out to do a little shopping afterward, which was something that was just a total luxury, just not something I had been able to do. And I walked up the steps to the deck in the back and through the window, I could see Chris and Kate sitting and working on something together, some some physio or some stretching or something like that. And I walked in, I started talking to him and to her and I was running my hands through his hair, just like running my fingers through his hair while I was talking to him. And this feeling just struck me all of a sudden that I had missed him. And it had been so long since I had gotten to feel that, to miss him and to feel just happy and excited to see him because when you're a caregiver and you leave the person that you care for for whatever period of time to go to the grocery store the gym or whatever little thing that you can go out and do the longer you're away from your person the more things you know they're going to need when you come back and so it was impossible for me to miss chris because i knew as soon as i walked through the door there were going to be 15 18 20 things that he needed And it wasn't extraneous. It wasn't that Chris was asking for more help than he needed. Chris needed help with everything. It was so hard for him. It was so hard for me. It was so hard for our kids. And Kate in that last month, um, Kate, I hope you're listening to this because I haven't been able to thank you properly, but in that last month, she gave me a chance to be Chris's wife again. And I can probably never... I know I can never, ever repay her for that, for that feeling that he and I were husband and wife and not just patient and caregiver. I really thought I had so much more of that ahead in our future. Um, But man, am I grateful that I had a month of it. So it was not long after Chris was admitted to the ICU that day in late September, September 26th that they told me they did not think that Chris would ever wake up, that the amount of time that he had been without oxygen had caused irreparable harm to his brain. And I quickly had to start thinking in a different way. I had to arrange for my kids to come to the hospital. I had to tell them that their dad was not going to wake up. I had to call family and friends and tell people that if they wanted to come and say goodbye to Chris, they needed to do it quickly. 
those days, those hours, those few weeks were a complete and total blur for me. I want to talk about those days because when I had Chris and when he was sick, there were times when I thought about those days, when I envisioned what those conversations that I would have to have with Cohen and Willa would look like. And I thought I wouldn't be able to do it. I thought if he wasn't there, I couldn't do these things. I thought telling my kids their dad is dead or going to die is impossible. I thought talking to them about whether they wanted to see his body was impossible. I thought making those decisions by myself was impossible. And so if any people are listening to this right now and they think those things are impossible, I want you to know that you can do it and you will do it and it will feel impossible. And after you do it, it will feel impossible to think about the fact that you did it and you won't know how you did it, but you will do it. You know, I wrote in my eulogy to Chris that I always believed in him. And I've talked about this on the podcast. I've never believed in something, someone, anything, the way I believe in Chris. I, and I say that present tense because I believe in Chris very much still. And in the aftermath of his death, I realized that he spent the last four and a half years making me know and putting in me the knowledge that he believed in me that same way. That he never had to worry about those conversations. He never had to think about how the kids would do because he knew I could do it. Because he believed in me the same way I believed in him. So we got through those really hard conversations and those very hard days. And we found a great amount of comfort when we learned that Chris could donate his organs. And we were thrilled that both of his kidneys, his liver, and his lungs could save lives. And so Chris was on life support for a while while organ donation was arranged. And I knew he wasn't really there in a physical sense at that point, and I wanted his body to rest. I wanted him to be done fighting. And I absolutely couldn't fathom saying goodbye. But I did that too. I have a complicated relationship with religion, and I realize that for the most part, religion, for me, this is me personally, it really has nothing to do with the way that I feel right now and the things that I believe, the things that I know, the things that I have seen over and over and over in the last 12 weeks are signs that Chris is everywhere and all around us, and also that he is nowhere that he is not next to me in the car in the morning listening to the daily or to Mumford and Sons or making some stupid dad joke that makes me laugh. He would often count how many times a day he could make me laugh. <laughs> I still find myself reaching my hand over into the passenger seat because I would often just hold his arm and put my hand on his leg when we were driving. And so I just do that 
just so that I know, so that if he's there, he knows that I'm still thinking about him too, all the time. When something goes wrong now, he's not there for me to talk to. When something goes right, he's not there for me to talk to. When I do something I'm proud of or not proud of, he's the person that I want to tell. When I have a question about our kids, I have to do it on my own. It seems unfathomable that he is gone and that I am here, that we are here without him. And I say that he is everywhere and nowhere all at once because he is. He has sent us so many beautiful signs. And I firmly believe that he's all around us. That does bring a large amount of comfort. But he is nowhere as well. And today, a day that was ours, our day, our wedding anniversary, he's gone. I have to find a way to do this day without him here. I have to find a way to do every day without him here. And the thing is, I am. I am doing it. And I am really fucking proud of myself. I am sad. My chest feels crushed under the weight of this holiday season and all of these special days. The memories of our wedding, of our honeymoon, of all of our Christmases together. It's heavy. And I am doing it. I am mothering my children. I am being kind to myself. I am leaning in to all of the ways that I know Chris is still here. To the fact that I knew Chris, I loved Chris for almost half my life. That he was my husband, my partner, and he was my best friend. I don't know if you've ever seen those holograms they can do of people who've done all these recordings and they can basically answer questions. It's some sort of, you know, really incredible AI, but I have that in my brain. I know Chris so well that when I have a question about something, like I can ask him and in my brain, in my heart, I can hear what he would say. There was this moment where I fixed something in the house, which is not like a new thing, right? Like, I, I don't know if you've, if whoever knows us listening to this knows that like I was the person who fixed things, who did electrical work, who did plumbing, who built furniture. Like that was my job <laughs> in our relationship. And, and I love doing those things. And in our master bathroom, we have in-floor heating, but for years it, it hasn't been working. And I thought, you know, I bet I just need to get a new thermostat. And so I did. I ordered a new thermostat and I had no idea if it would work because I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but I watched a YouTube video, which is how I accomplished most of my DIY and home improvement projects. And I installed this and I was messaging with my mom about it. And I finished installing it and I went back upstairs a few hours later and, and sure enough, it, it worked and and the in-floor heating was working and my feet were warm on the tile and I sent a picture of it, the thermostat with the temperature up like, you know, 88 degrees. I sent it to my mom and I said, I did it. And I knew that I wanted to send that message to Chris. And I knew 
exactly what he would say. He would write me back four words. Of course you did. We had Chris's memorial service at a Catholic church here in Calgary that he loved, and it was live-streamed. About 750 people were at the church, and about 1,300 people live-streamed the service. It is, I don't know, remarkable or a symbol of how hopeful Chris always was and positive and how far we felt he was from, from dying, that we had never talked about what he wanted for a funeral what music he wanted, who he wanted to speak, aside from the fact that he had asked me to do a eulogy. (laughs) I arranged the service the way that I wanted to do it, how I thought it should be. I had the music that I knew he would love, but everybody who spoke did such a good job, and the tributes were just beautiful, and the intercessions were beautiful, and it was all wonderful. And somehow in the days after the service, I found myself just obsessively asking people if they thought it was beautiful, if they thought it did Chris justice, if they thought I had done a good job. And people looked at me like I was crazy and people said that, you know, it was one of the most touching services they'd ever seen. And I knew that it was wonderful. And I knew that it was beautiful. I had been there and I had been touched so much by everything everybody said. And so I wondered, why do I keep asking people this? Like, who, what, what, what is this that I'm looking for? And then I realized the one person who I needed to ask was Chris. And I couldn't. And at the same time, I knew I know that Chris is proud of us and that he loved that service, but I met Chris when I was 21 years old, and I have never really been an adult without him. I graduated from the University of Kansas, and I did one last summer internship at the Boston Globe, and that summer we got engaged, and then I moved to Minnesota, and we have lived together ever since. I became a grown-up with Chris. I became a mom with Chris. I became myself with him by my side. And it is foundation shaking to realize that you don't get to check in with that person anymore, that they can't give you a hug when you're having a hard day, that there are no more laughs to be had together. I keep coming back to the word impossible because it feels impossible. Even as I'm doing it, it feels impossible. And I think that's grief. The idea of grief feels impossible. That's why people don't want to talk about it or they want you to be okay or they see you smiling or laughing and think, oh, thank God, it's not that bad. (laughs) It's that bad, but it's not impossible. Just a few weeks after Chris died, a friend lost her husband as well. Not a close friend, much closer now, (laughs) but uh, we, we text quite a bit about, you know, all of the complicated feelings. She has two young kids as well. She and her husband were together for the same amount of time as Chris and I were together. And, you know, we've been talking about that idea of of on the days where you're okay, of how it feels like a betrayal. And you think, what's wrong with me? I'm not completely despondent today. And what a complicated thing, because the days when you 
don't feel completely bludgeoned by your sadness. You feel swallowed up at the notion that you aren't sad enough. Because if you aren't sad enough, like maybe you are already forgetting your person. And like sadness feels right. It feels right to cry and to be sad. You need that. It feels like a betrayal, like you're betraying yourself. I don't feel like I'm betraying Chris on a day when I'm not so, so, so desperately sad because I know that Chris wouldn't be happy for me on those days. I know that's exactly what Chris wanted. I feel like I'm betraying myself because I know how sad I am. So I'm like, what is wrong with myself? (laughs) But grief is such a complicated thing. And all of these different feelings and emotions are swirling around. And so I don't know what this podcast looks like going forward because I don't know what my life looks like going forward. I don't know what my grief looks like going forward. But I do know that I don't owe you anything and you don't owe me anything. But we could still go through it together and that could help us both. And so I'm going to share and it's going to be hard. And a lot of you are going to tell me that you couldn't listen to this. And I get that. I get that. But if you could pull back the curtain and stop trying to avoid this thing that we are all going to have to go through at some point in our lives, this grief, this loss of something, of someone, something that is profound, that shakes you, that rewrites your entire narrative. If you could see somebody doing it, if you could know that it's 1.35 on Thursday afternoon and I'm recording this at my desk and at three o'clock I'm going to go pick up my kids And then we're going to go to the mall because we need to use up our vision benefits and order some new glasses. And then we're going to pick up some gifts for Secret Santa. And then we're going to come home and we're going to have dinner. And there's going to be laughs in there. And then there's also going to be tears in there. And then we're going to do all of those things. And I'm going to go to bed and I'm going to sleep and I'm going to get up and I'm going to do tomorrow. Like if you can see that this thing that we're so scared of, this grief that we're so scared of, that it isn't impossible, that you can still do it and life at the same time. And thank God that I have the kids because they are the reason that I have to go use up my vision benefits and get a secret Santa gift to take somebody to hockey and make somebody lunch and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They are the thing, they are what are keeping me going right now. So I hope that you'll come along with me in this. I plan, I hope, I don't plan, I'm done planning. (laughs) I'm not planning. I hope that in the next weeks and months and years, we will explore, I will explore this, we will explore this, I will talk to other people about this, and we will talk about all of these complicated things together. The complications of being a caregiver and then having your person and your patient taken from you. And then what what is your purpose in life? And where do you go with all that care you were giving them? And and what what is the purpose of our guilt and and how And how is our guilt serving us? How is our guilt protecting us? How is our shame protecting us? Is that a feasible thing? All of these ideas that come up around grief and loss, especially when you're a caregiver. Because my job, my job was to keep Chris alive. And I couldn't do it. I didn't do it. And my logic brain tells me that was not my fault. And my heart tells me I could have done more. 
And it doesn't matter how many people tell you that it wasn't your fault and don't think that way and blah, 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 because you have to get through that on your own. You have to reckon with that yourself. And that's what part of this process is for me. I'm learning how to parent a 12-year-old boy and a nine-year-old girl who have just lost their parent. I can't relate to that. My mom and my dad are still alive. Thank God. So for now, if you have somebody with you who you love, please take my anniversary today as a reason to tell them how much you love them, as a reason to not wait to give somebody a hug or a kiss or watch a movie with them or spend time talking to them and listening to their day. Just on my anniversary, please live your life in the most loving way possible. A few weeks after Chris died, I was going through his computer looking for some passwords or something like that. And I found a note, you know, it's on his phone and on his on his computer and in, in iNotes there or whatever it's called. And I don't remember him writing it. I think the date on the note was last January. So it would have been after he got out of the ICU and life was very hard after Chris got out of the ICU. And it said one sentence. It said, it is vitally important to me that you live life to the fullest. That is the message that my husband left us. That is a message that my husband left you. It is vitally important to me that you live life to the fullest. Two of my best friends are sisters and they lost their parents to cancer when they were in their 20s and not at the same time, you know, some years apart, but it was an out of order death. And it's a weird time to have to grieve and go through a loss because you're not really an adult, but you're, they were in their early twenties. You're not really an adult. You're, you're not really a kid and nobody knows what to do. Your friends don't know how to deal with that grief and adults don't know how to approach you about it. It's, it's very complicated. And, and, and we went out to celebrate, you know, one of their birthdays last night and, my friend just mentioned that this is such a hard time for her, you know, her birthday and then Christmas and her parents aren't here. And, you know, she's, she has a beautiful life and she's built a beautiful life for herself, but the void is just, the void doesn't fill, nothing fills that void. Right. And this is a hard time of year. And I was thinking about her this morning, you know, and I sent her a message and I think that when I sent her that message, I was probably also sending it to myself. I think a lot of the times when I send messages to people now, it's a way that I'm just sort of writing um, to myself. But um, I think that I'll end this, <laughs> whatever this is, <laughs> by by sharing it with you all. Because I know I've heard from so many of you how much Chris inspired you. And how his example of living has made a lasting impact on you. And, you know, I've heard a couple of my friends and his friends say to me, you know, like that Chris's death really shook them because Chris was the miracle. And, and I have told them both what I believe in my heart. Chris is the miracle. That is not past tense. That is present tense. Chris is the miracle an example of how to live while you're dying, of how to never lose your optimism, your hope, your positivity, of how to keep going in the face of so many tragedies that he had to deal with in his life. 
and of how to love. You know, I used to think that people had this opinion or this feeling about my marriage, that it was perfect, that it was this shining example to hold up of of what love looks like. And I used to think, well, that's not true. These people should know. Like, we argue, we fight. This is very hard. You know, we haven't had an easy go in our marriage. We've had a lot of things to overcome and to struggle through. And then I realized, oh, wait, that is exactly why I hold it up. Because we did all those things. We struggled in all those ways. And we took care of each other at the end of the day. Our love always rose to the top. And we always fought for it. And we always made the decision, the choice to keep fighting for it and for each other, to believe in each other so deeply. And I think that like when people look at our relationship and they say like that is an admirable kind of love, I think that's what it is. It's like how deeply we believed in each other, how deeply we believe in each other. I said to my friend, all my love today as you turn 40, there is so much to mourn. And there is so much to celebrate. I hope today you find moments of joy. When I am feeling like the bad outweighs the good, and the sad outweighs the happy, I remind myself of the note I found on Chris's computer in the weeks after he died. I remind myself that the world is still beautiful, even when it's sad. And so I have to double down. I have to look for joy and beauty, because that is what he would have done. That is what he wanted me to do. It's so painful to be alive without Chris, but when the pain is crushing, I remind myself that the reason it is so big is because it equals the size of our love. And so in that way, the pain is welcome. It feels right. And in a strange way, I treasure it. Lean into the pain, my friend. Lean into the joy. Lean into the love all around you. Lean into this crushing beautiful life we get to live. Holidays are hard for so many people, not just people who have lost their spouse or their parents. There's so many reasons why holidays are hard. It's okay for them to be hard. It's okay for it to not feel joyous. It's okay for this not to be the happiest time of year. And it's also okay to remind yourself of what Chris said. It is vitally important to me that you live life to the fullest. Chris fought so hard to stay alive. He fought so hard to be here. And we are here. And so I hope that at every time of year, we can find our way back to that truth and that miracle, the miracle of being alive. I don't know when I'll be back again. I do know I'm looking forward to January, which is a shift for me because my friends can attest that I hate January and February most years. They are very bleak months, um, especially up here in the great white North, but my soul feels very bleak. And so I really am looking forward to that bleakness. I'm looking forward to the world matching up with me. I'm looking forward to quiet, to peace, to writing, to reading, to calm, I'm looking forward to a break from school for my kids so that we can all pull ourselves up out of this water that we have just been trying not to drown in these last months. I'm looking forward to life with all of its pain and all of its heartache and all of its joy and all of its hope. Thanks, as always, 
for listening. The past is never